Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Wild, Messy, Infinite Love. I am your host, Eric Snyder. It's weird to say host. It makes me feel like I'm leading a radio talk show and I guess I sort of am, question mark. Um, but this whole podcasting reality is still very new to me, um, and it's so, 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 so exciting. So here I am for another episode. This week's episode is episode number six, Maybe It's Time to Buy a Puppy. <laughs> oh my goodness, just thinking through um, this episode and its title, it is bizarre, it's weird, it's funny, um, and I am just so, so, so excited to bring it to you. So, maybe it's time to buy a puppy. Let's talk about it. So my wife and I have had this really bizarre experience over the past couple weeks. Um, so my wife and I, just a little backstory, my wife and I have been married for two years now and, you know, we're not exactly in like that quote unquote newlywed phase anymore, but we aren't like an old married couple either because um, I feel like the newlywed phase is like this phase of adjustment, right? It's, you know... It's this getting used to living with someone else in a much more intimate way than anything that you've ever experienced. It's like this isn't getting used to living with a college roommate. This is this relationship has a different dynamic. You know, you're figuring out finances and jobs and possibly school and family relationships and ties. Um, it's like this whole second half of your life has been connected to you and. You, then you need to start working through all the different connections and synapses of this other host, this other being. Um, and that makes it sound like your wife is a parasite and your <laughs> your spouse or your husband or your wife is absolutely not a parasite. Um, but um, so there's this um, working through this new dynamic, this new kind of relationship, this new sharing of your intimate space. And my wife and I, though we are still learning new stuff about each other, um, we're beginning to, you know, get into the swing of sharing life together. Um, we're getting into that rhythm. We're getting into that understanding of how we deal with finances and jobs and school and family and all that kind of stuff. Um, and over the past couple weeks and months, we've begun experiencing this desire to add something to the mix. Um, now, if my mom is listening, we are not ready to have kids yet. Um, you know, we're both still working through school. We're, um, you know, we're really just not ready for that sort of financial or spiritual or emotional commitment of bringing a child into this world. But at the same time, you know, we're starting to have that desire of bringing something else into this dynamic of our relationship. So over the past couple weeks, my wife and I have been scouring the internet for puppies. That's right, puppies. 
Um, and just talking about my wife, just a disclaimer, um, sometimes I get to be at home in our small one-bedroom apartment alone and record these podcasts, and other times I get to record these podcasts with my wife present in the home, and right now is one of those times where my wife is present in the home, and we share this space. So if you hear um, a TV going or shuffling off in the distance or a woman's voice talking, that's my wife. Um, we share this space. It's not a huge space. So um, that's just our life. So if you hear that, that's what's going on. We're just having a normal Friday, which is our normal day off. Um, so anyway, me and my wife have been scouring the internet for puppies. Um, now, this is a phenomenon that is really interesting. And um, Richard Rohr describes it in these sorts of terms. So married couples, particularly couples who have either decided not to have kids or who are totally unable to have kids, have a tendency to find for themselves some sort of love child to break the duality of their relationship. Um, So this means like adding a third party to the relationship and in doing so it brings with it a sort of as Richard Rohr would probably say, a sort of Trinitarian dynamic. Um, So maybe this couple gets a dog or a cat or a fish, or they pour their hearts into travel, or maybe some sort of community that they're both a part of. So like church or a shared service project at a local homeless shelter, Um, whatever it might be, this couple really no longer wishes to just be a two-way street. They wish to have a third something that they can both equally pour into and include into this Trinitarian dynamic. Um, Now, the Trinity, according to Richard Rohr, is not what a lot of people think of when they, you know, imagine the Trinity. So when most people imagine the Trinity, they imagine like this bearded white dude and his son with a backwards facing baseball cap playing Frisbee. And then off in the corner, there's like this ethereal bedsheet wearing holy ghost. Um, So (laughs) that's not the image that Richard Rohr is working with. So Richard Rohr's understanding of Trinity harkens to a more ancient understanding of the Trinity, not as persons, but as dynamic energy and relationship. And these essences of the Trinity are not monolithic beings, but instead They are interweaving relationship. Um, They move within and throughout each other, um, you know, endlessly. Um, They're in this endless circulating dance called perichoresis, which is um, this ancient Greek word that means effectively circle dance. Um, So they are like moving in and throughout each other in endless encircling movements. Um, and it's, you know, it's much like the image of a proton and a neutron and an electron, which will all weave within and throughout each other. And what's interesting about the proton, neutron, and electron is that when they dance together and they dance with one another, they create a fourth thing, an atom, Um, And the same can be said of the Trinity. 
when the essences of Trinity flow within and throughout each other in this boundless relationship of love and this boundless perichoresis, they inherently create a fourth something. And this act of dancing and creation is what I would call Trinitarian love, which is what we'll be discussing today. And this Trinitarian love, which is dynamically interactive and in its threeness and also dynamically creative in its outpouring, is also the love that we experience in our wild and messy lives. We experience this Trinitarian love in all the width and breadth of our existence and being, which to make it a little more easy to wrap our minds around, I would claim can be labeled under three sort of metaspheres. Um, so these metaspheres are sort of the spheres that we as humans exist in. So the first metasphere um, which we exist in is the metasphere of self. Um, so this could be talked about in terms of the rooting of oneself in one's false self or true self. Man, I'm saying self a lot. <laughs> um you know, this is stuff that we talked about last week. This love and relationship with the self is also seen in the interior work of identity formation and getting to know oneself. Um, the relationship we have with ourselves, which helps guide our decision making from what socks we'll wear when we get up to the food we'll eat for breakfast to the school that we decide to go to or the career paths we choose. Um, when we encounter our shadow side too, that's part of of our self-relationship. You know, when we engage with our triggers, our addictions, our fears, our anxieties, that is a form of being in relationship with oneself. Um, all of that is wrapped up in the personal relationship that we have with ourselves. And that is a very real sphere of existence that we have. We exist within the self. Um, and the second sphere that we exist in is the sphere of community. Um, this communal sense of love that we have is what bonds us to the relationships that we have with others. So these are things like family units, our friends and loved ones, our coworkers, our classmates, our peers, our bosses, our engagement with particular with our particular national communities through such practices as public engagement or politics. Um, or this could even be the institutions which we are a part of. So things like churches, schools, jobs, nonprofits, where we spend our leisure time. So like the stores that we shop at, the restaurants we eat at, um, the grocery stores that we buy food from, um, where we go to see the new Marvel movie. These institutions are also part of this communal sphere. Um, our neighborhoods, all of these things that we are communally tied to. Um, these are the things and the institutions that connect us to this communal sphere of existence. So not only do we exist in the self, but we also exist in a community with other people directly around us. And then the third sphere um, that we exist in is the sphere of the cosmos. And this is the relationship that we have with the planet. Um, the universal relationship that we have with um, the world, with people, with everything and everyone. Um, so this is the relationship that we have with the planet and its natural resources. This is our engagement with the global, international, universal community. Um, this is engagement like human rights engagement, such as 
providing clean water or food or clothing for people around the world. Um, This is our relationship with the spirit that runs within and throughout all things, which is something that I talk a lot about here on this podcast. Um, The sphere of the cosmos is the sphere that looks beyond nationality, skin color, sexual identities, or anything else. Um, It's the sphere that views the world as bearing the mark of the divine spirit. And when we enter into these sorts of things, we enter into um, almost a cosmic universal scale because the relationship is no longer simply about the individual or the particular community. It's about all people and all things. Um, you know, while movements such as the nonviolent, non-cooperation movement led by Gandhi or the civil rights movement led by Dr. King were enacted within particular communities, they also spoke on the cosmic scale about what freedom and liberty truly meant for the world, particularly in light of oppression of minorities. So these are these three spheres that we exist in. We exist on a sphere of the self. We exist on the sphere of our direct communities. And then we also exist on a sphere that's universal and cosmic. Um, But I bet you're probably still asking, well, I don't know what a puppy has to do with anything that you're talking about right now, Eric. Uh, Don't worry, I'm getting there. So um, if we begin to model our existence within these spheres after this Trinitarian dynamic of love and relationship, you know, that thing that's continually interweaving in this perichoresis circle dance, um, then we also begin tapping into a vital aspect of what love is. So oftentimes when people talk about love, it's either as an emotion or as some like ethereal love is all you need, man, kind of ideal. Um, However, when when we model our love after the Trinitarian dynamic, our love takes on a new form. Love is not just emotion or relationship or an ideal. Um, Love becomes the action through which all things happen and occur. Um, And one of the primary actions that comes with love is the divine act of creation. So today I really want to look at the creation myth of Genesis that is found within the Hebrew Bible because I think it tells us some things about creation that are important to understand because because when we participate in Trinitarian love, then these marks of creation will begin manifesting themselves within our lives too. And whether or not you like the language of Trinity, um, the basic theory behind these marks of creation are good marks to aim for. So if you're hesitant about all the God language, hang with me, because even though I use God language, this stuff is much more cosmic and universal, at least, you know, at least I think, than simple Christian terms. Um, So the three marks of creation that we see in this Genesis creation myth are form, growth, and vulnerability. And I really want to say that even though we have a tendency to align things in static terms, so we tend to align things in a first we get to this stage, then this stage, then this stage, and they don't necessarily like interact with one another. I really want to encourage you to think of these marks, not as like these monolithic landmarks, but as 
interconnected and eternally dancing partners with each other, much like the Trinity is. So oftentimes we'll think, oh, we're in the forming stage, then we're in the growth stage, then we're in the vulnerability stage. But in fact, we experience form and growth and vulnerability all working within each other at the same time. So um, first, I suppose we should talk about form. Um, So in Genesis, we have this fantastic image of the divine spirit pulsating with energy, hovering over the chaos waters like a hummingbird hovers over flowers. It evokes imagery of a spirit that is bubbling and flitting all over the place. One second it's in one place and then the next it's not. So this divine spirit um, is hovering and vibrating and pulsating with energy, but it's also given the action of breathing forth creation, giving form to the chaos waters and the expansive void. Um, So to give form to something is to create a space or a structure for something to inhabit. It is manifesting something that did not used to exist. Something is here now that wasn't there before. That's what giving form is. So when we model love after Trinitarian love, much like the three essences outpouring creates a fourth something, when we too create space in our own relationships through love, we manifest love in all of its many forms in all of our relationships. Um, So take, for instance, the interior work one does in identity formation. Um, So in order for one to truly encounter oneself and to begin critically engaging with one's worldview, theology, political views, likes, dislikes, dreams, desires, you know, all that kind of stuff, one must first create the space for this engagement to happen. Um, You know, one has to give this engagement form by asking questions. Um, These questions are the form of manifest critical engagement and one creates the space by allowing oneself to begin asking such questions in the first place um you know an instance of this in the communal sphere would be the birth of a brand new child um there is something there in a mother's arms that did not used to exist in that moment after birth when the mother is holding her child there's a connection that's formed a relationship that's forged That is love being manifest in reality. Um, In the cosmic sphere, this takes many shapes as well, but one particular one that sticks out to me is the formation of organizations and structures that really look to oppose the powers and principalities of empire. Um, And these powers and principalities are constantly looking to exploit and and oppress our world's resources and our world's minority populations. So take, for instance, the fair trade movement, which um, they saw the despicable conditions that produce the cheap clothing and food that we purchase on a daily basis. And when they saw these despicable conditions, they said that the human and worldly cost was not worth the low impact that it had on our wallets. This cheap shit that we're buying is not worth the cost that it is taking on our planet, the toll that it is taking on human lives. And when they, when they saw this, 
they manifested love in the form of creating a structure by which people could resist and oppose the system of oppressive economics. And they gave form to a kind of justice which sought to enable all humans in the world a living wage and safe working conditions and protection for our planet and its natural resources and all this kind of stuff. That was given form by the fair trade movement. That is love manifest in reality. And to, I guess, bring it back to a more personal, I don't know, less heavy reality. I would say it's a less heavy reality. You know, in the case of me and my wife looking to adopt a puppy, see, I told you it would come back. Um, you know, we're manifesting a relationship between a dog and a family that previously didn't exist. Um, and just imagine with me for a second what it would look like if we actually viewed our relationships with such sacredness. The act of forming something good that previously didn't exist is a sacred and divine act. You know, imagine what it would look like if we viewed our relationships as, you know, we are creating a sacred space where love is being manifest, when we're coming into relationship with ourselves, when we're coming into relationship with the people around us, and when we're coming into relationship with our world. It's not just a relationship. It is a sacred and divine act that we're entering into. Um, so second then is growth. Um, and when we enter into um, this Trinitarian love, this Trinitarian dynamic, um, something that happens is that growth occurs. Um, and this is the action of the outpouring of the Trinity, right? The relationship builds upon itself and eventually it outpours and it grows beyond its barriers, so to speak. Um, and we see this in the creation myth and the continuing, continuing expansion of the world. You know, it starts with just a divine spirit, but then it expands to include light and then water and sun and stars and plants and animals and humans. Once one thing begins to exist, it begins to expand and grow into a bigger and more expansive thing. And sometimes that thing even plants seeds that will eventually grow into their own things. Um, and this is seen in our lived experiences as well. You know, like when we get to know someone, really anyone, but particularly the people and voices who have been historically marginalized and silenced, um, you know, when we when we encounter people, and I mean like really encounter someone who is different than us, we are stretched. Um, and this entails much more than just like token diversity or, well, I read a book by a gay person one time, like this actually entails getting to know someone, learning their joys, desires, and dreams. Um, ultimately, it involves taking the time to actually listen and take in what they're saying. Um, and when we do this, we are stretched, we grow, we expand. Um, so for instance, when I was in college, you know, it really pains me to say this now, but at the time I was on the fence about how I felt um, in terms of affirmation of the LGBTQ community. You know, I really wasn't sure what to think because I came from a tradition that always said that they were other. Um, and thus, 
um, their voice was marginalized. I never, you know, as far as I knew, really talked to anyone from the LGBTQ community because it wasn't a widely accepted thing where I grew up. Um, but when I got to college, I was given the space to start questioning some of the things that my tradition had told me. And affirmation of the LGBTQ community was one of those things that came into question. And, you know, it wasn't until I actually started to get to know members of the LGBTQ community and began to truly listen to their stories and experiences that I started to reform some of my conclusions. Um, And ultimately, I've reached the conclusion that total inclusion and affirmation of this marginalized and discriminated voice was absolutely good and needed. And that process stretched me. Um, And my understanding of people and the world grew and expanded because of it. I'll never forget um, one of the most impactful things that I ever heard was on a video that was um, going around and interviewing you know, people who were quote unquote heteronormative um, straight people. And one of the questions in this interview was, so when did you decide to become straight? And that worked on me. That hit me in a way that I had never even thought of. Um, because my tradition told me that, you know, this is a choice that they're making and because it's a choice, it's a sin and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And all of a sudden I started working through and thinking, you know, like, wait a minute, when did I be choose to become straight? That's just part of who I am. Um, and who's to say that's not how people in the LGBTQ community feel as well? What, how, how is my experience of just knowing who I am any different from their experience of knowing who they are. And that opened the door to start exploring some of these voices. And that stretched me. It expanded me. It grew me. Um, And, you know, that particular experience that I shared wasn't just um, a communal experience, but it was also part of the self sphere. Like I said, this, these things like work in and throughout each other. So not only did I listen to the stories and experiences of the LGBTQ community, but it caused me caused more questions to arise in me, which, you know, I then followed down to my deepest core. And in that self exploration process, I found myself expanded. You know, not only did I see my community is more expansive, you know, not only did I see that the church should be affirming and be welcoming in LGBTQ members, but I realized that I too was more expanded. Um, you know, like how many of us have left home and have encountered a life outside of the bubble that we had been living in and we encounter new experiences and new voices and we end up growing and being stretched by those, um, And, you know, cosmically speaking, this can be seen through, yet again, the fair trade industry. So when we hear about the injustice of sweatshop labor and our move to change our spending habits so as to buy ethically sourced goods, that is growth because no longer is our primary concern our individual wallet. Our primary concern has changed to include all of humanity, um, particularly the oppressed peoples of the world. It expands to include include 
a concern for our world, its natural resources. Um, that is growth, friends. Um, and what's really interesting is that growth also seems to plant seeds. You know, when expansion happens or growth happens or injustice is resisted or confronted, it seems to spread like wildfire. You know, take, for instance, the nonviolent, non-cooperation movement of Gandhi. Um, because of the work that Gandhi did, it influenced a man named Martin Luther King Jr., who, in his inspiration, sparked the civil rights movements in the, of the 1960s, which then went on to spark current-day social justice movements, movements such as Black Lives Matter. Um, growth doesn't just happen for ourselves or our communities, but oftentimes the growth of this love also presents itself in the planting of seeds and then those seeds bearing their own fruit for their own time, place, and space. Um, you know, in the case of our perspective puppy, we would obviously actively be nurturing the physical and emotional growth of our puppy, but, you know, I'd be willing to bet that the relation, that this relationship with a puppy um, would also work on us too. We would grow in some way, shape, or form. And folks, if we can grow from a relationship with a puppy, imagine how much more we can grow from a relationship with another human being. Um, and finally, the third and probably hardest aspect of creation is vulnerability. Um, so we see in Genesis that God doesn't keep creation in a stranglehold. Instead, once everything has been created, um, once, have, once his act of creation has created the fourth something, so to speak, God lets it go. God tells Adam and Eve, go, exist in this creation I have made. Continue the ongoing work of creation. Um, Trinitarian love outpours and creates a fourth something and invites it into the dance with it. But ultimately... It holds no control over that fourth something. It can't force that fourth something to enter into the dance. So I'm, many, I'm sure many of you can attest to this, but you know, when it comes to self-disclosure in relationships, there is quite a bit of risk that surrounds that. Um, particularly when it comes to relationships with others and the world, there is very little control we can exert on how people re will respond to what we have to say. You know, this podcast, for instance, is something that I'm creating and putting out into the world, but there is always a risk that it flops, that it fails, that the world hates it. Um, in our personal relationships, there's always a risk that divulging our deepest, darkest secrets will be met with rebuke or disgust, though any truly healthy, loving relationship wouldn't react in rebuke or disgust. Um, and... The risk comes not necessarily in the self-disclosure per se, but it comes in that lack of control. Um, when we try to control people's thoughts, reactions, and emotions, it stunts growth. You know, take, for instance, a helicopter parent who is all up in their kid's business once they leave home. If the child's not given the room to leave the bubble fully, then their wings end up getting clipped and then they will either burst the bubble completely and destroy the relationship entirely or severely damage that relationship between child and parent or they'll never leave the bubble at all and they'll never begin expanding beyond themselves. 
And this need for control, this lack of vulnerability at its worst, um, leads to abuse and oppression, particularly against those who are the most vulnerable. Um, And when we work through this fear of vulnerability, however, um, we see that this love can continue eternally. So when we ignore vulnerability, it leads to stunted growth, it leads to abuse, it leads to oppression. But when we actually work through it, when we actually encounter it, when we actually do not let that fear hold us down and prevent us from self-disclosure, we see that this love continues eternally. So take, for instance, the vulnerability one has with oneself. Um, When we allow ourselves to actually engage with our doubts and our fears and our anxieties, they somehow become less taboo. Um, And when we are able to talk about these things with ourselves, it somehow makes it easier to talk to others about it, which opens the door for more opportunities for healing and wholeness. Um, In a communal communal sphere of vulnerability, you know, we experience this in many different ways, but I know from my experience, um, one of the primary areas that I um, encounter this is with my relationship with my spouse. Um, when we disclose ourselves and share all of ourselves with someone like our spouse, there's a closeness, closeness and intimacy that's forged there. Um, It molds and shapes the people involved in that relationship. It works on them and expands them. But the vulnerability of intimacy is needed um, because one must let go of the desire to control the other's reactions. One must just let the relationship be what it will be. Um, And when we're vulnerable, there's a closeness and there's deeper sense of love and connection that we experience there. Um, As far as a um, cosmic level, um, vulnerability involves the ability to confess that we live in an unjust world where people and resources are taken advantage of on a regular basis and that we are in fact complicit in some or possibly even many of these injustices. You know, we buy the cheap clothes from Walmart that were made at the expense of taking advantage of people and our resources. Um, You know, we don't take care of our planet. We are involved in an economic system that um, prioritizes the use of fossil fuels over renewable energy. Um, At least in America, we do. that's complicity in the powers and principalities' ability to oppress and exploit our planet and the people on the planet. Um, so having the vulnerability to say, yes, I am a part of that system. How can I change? That's a vulnerable step. Um, and this aspect of vulnerability in creation um, is also connected with the ability to allow something to pass, to let go. Um, You know, we bear these eternal spirits, but, you know, we tend, we seem to live in this temporal world where relationships don't last forever. 
you know, we grow, we move on to the next stage of life. We're no longer in high school. Um, we move on to the next job. Uh, we move to a new city. Um, we lose loved ones in tragic circumstances. Um, we see that within love and creation and life, there's a cycle, a cycle of life to death to life again, because we all go through these dark nights of the soul where the tunnel seems devoid of light and the tunnel seems endless. And we are cut and scarred walking through this dark, dark place. But then we get to the other side. And that's not to say that we forget the scars that we received in the tunnel. That doesn't mean that we go actively go back into the tunnel and go back into those situations that put us through this literal hell and this literal death. But we make it through and we bask in the light and we continue on. And we must have the vulnerability to seek help from the divine spirit in all of its many forms, primarily in community with others. Um, we have to have the vulnerability to say, I am struggling here. Um, and when we come into community with others who have gone through similar experiences, that's a way that we find wholeness and growth. You see this in the... Um, rehabilitation movement of AA. You see this in support groups for people who have lost loved ones to cancer. Um, you know, these, these experiences of people saying, I am at a loss for words of how to explain or how to work through what I'm going through. And people come together and share their experiences with one another. And they're vulnerable with one another. And somehow in that process of coming into community, of sharing experiences, of being vulnerable, healing begins to occur. Um, and not only is it having the vulnerability to say, hey, I'm really struggling with something. This is also the vulnerability to hear someone's struggles and say, I have experienced that too. Um, it's the vulnerability to tell someone, no matter how dark their secret is, you're not alone. Because the other odd thing that we try to do is we try to cover up our scars. We try to cover up those dark parts of our past that we struggled. We try to put on this front that says, oh, everything's fine. Everything's hunky-dory. You know, I've never had any problems in my life. That is a bald face lie. We all go through stuff. Um, and some of that stuff is really shitty. Um, and having the vulnerability, one, to express that in the moment to someone, but then also having the vulnerability to tell someone that they're not alone in their experience. That is a big, important step. And that is an act of creation. Um, because those moments of vulnerability um, those are the kind of moments that stick with someone forever. Um, because, you know, getting back to the puppy, ultimately for this uh, perspective puppy, not only are we, me and my wife, being vulnerable by letting another being into our intimate space, but ultimately we know 
that our relationship with a puppy won't last forever. Um, I think it's safe to say that most um, average human lives outlast that of average puppy lives. Um, but these experiences that we have um, or that we would have with a puppy, um, that would stick with us forever. These experiences of love, of this Trinitarian dynamic that we have, stick with us for eternity. And I think that's really what makes love so powerful, um, especially when we model it after this Trinitarian dynamic, because love leaves a fingerprint. Um, in the Bible, this is talked about as the image of God. You know, I also talk about it as the spirit which connects us all. Um, but the spirit of love, um, especially in the form of relationship and creation, leaves marks on us. We are continually shaped by experiences of self-discovery. Um, you know, I know I'll take my experiences of expansion and growth from college with me forever. Uh, we are also eternally shaped by the people that we come into contact with, especially the ones to whom we draw close to. You know, our family, our friends, our schools, our churches, our jobs, even our pets, they all leave a part of themselves with us. Um, you know, I don't think you could ever talk to someone who's reminiscing about their beloved former pet who doesn't instantly recall those moments of laughter and joy that came with that relationship. And then they seriously laugh. In that moment, they laugh. Their hearts are filled with joy in the memory. That's the remnant, the footprint, the mark that love leaves on us. And it continues to exist even now after its passing. Um, life, while it goes through death, ultimately continues in life eternal because it is always an ongoing process. So, Maybe it's time to do the interior work of self-discovery, an act of being in loving relationship with the self. Maybe it's time to enter into loving relationships with the people around you, particularly the marginalized and silenced people who exist within your community. Maybe it's time to enter into a loving relationship with how your actions and voice impacts the greater world, community, and the cosmos around you. Or maybe you're like me and my wife. Maybe it's just time to buy a puppy. Peace and love, y'all.